pray for people if anybody needs prayer about anything specific and of course I know that you know just God to touch you and move in your life as well but father I thank you for your word tonight we thank you for your presence that's here Holy Spirit as you move among us but Lord we thank you for your word we need your word and Lord I pray tonight I thank you Lord for the Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us to help us to be good soil for the word that we're kind of locked in and focused on what you're speaking to us tonight. We're good soil. That your word will go out as living seed sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And like the wind of the Spirit carrying this out, where it needs to go, accomplishing what it needs to. And Lord, everything is going to be accomplished in it through this time because the word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it for to do. So, Lord, we thank you for it, and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before I get into my notes, I was thinking about with the baby dedication tonight that the book of Judges, the whole reason why there were so many problems that you read about in the book of Judges was because there was a generation that grew up that didn't know the Lord the way the previous generation did. And it just wasn't intentional that the parents make sure that the children knew. And so I just challenge all of us, it doesn't matter how old your kids are, to begin to really um, invest in the knowledge that you have in the Lord to them, pass that to them, pray for them, uh, speak a blessing over them. And I've seen God really begin to move, even in kids that are older. And uh, just being careful what I say, but one of my parishioners sitting right here um, has been praying for her kids and I have seen just about every one of her kids and most of her grandkids come through here and really get touched by God you know and God has moved mightily because of her prayers so praying parents it's so powerful I know Steve Hill before he died he probably led and I, I would say conservatively he probably led at least a million people to the Lord and God really used him in a mighty way but before that he was a mainline drug addict, and his mother would just pray for him. I mean, he was shooting up with heroin, and and he was basically at death's door. As a matter of fact, he felt that he was dying, and he was he got really scared. And he was telling his mom that, so she called a minister to come, and he was praying with him, kind of like a deathbed type of experience there. And and the the minister is a Lutheran minister, and told him just say the name of Jesus, and he did as he was saying Jesus. He had an encounter with the Lord. The Lord saved him, and the Lord began delivering him right there. And, and I mean, God transformed that man's life. He ended up going to Bible school, and then later God used him in a powerful way. But you got to understand that his story was this. Him and his friends would be doing crazy stuff. I mean, I don't want to get too graphic with little kids, but, I mean, they were shooting up and sticking needles in the sand his mom would come in and see this and she would just start crying. she'd go to her bedroom and just pray and he said there were times he'd go in there and see her praying parents don't give up praying for your kids because eventually god saved him and not only saved him used him to see many others saved okay all right so let's get into these notes tonight i'm actually beginning a series that i know some of you are only with me tonight 
And so, of course, if you want to, you can follow us online. We, all of our notes are up, and we have sermons, and you can follow us on sermon.net. But I'm going to start this series on the harvest cycles, and I'm going to be, I believe this will be very interesting to those that are here, but this is going to be maybe a lengthy series because we're going to cover a lot of ground. But tonight, this will be kind of a short sermon, but I want to touch on this. So for those that don't know, when God appeared to Israel like he did on Mount Sinai and Moses had cut covenant with Israel and sprinkled the blood of the covenant on the leaders and God was on the top of Mount Sinai and they trembled with fear. But God basically, if you will, kind of married himself to the nation of Israel like a husband and wife type relationship. And God the Father always wanted to be seen that way. It's it's very interesting because when God even set up the feast days, he set them up like this. So during Passover time, and it's, it's Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. It's all kind of together. That is actually the barley harvest. And so Israel would acknowledge that God was their provider, okay? And then at Pentecost, called Shavuot in Hebrew, that was the wheat harvest. So they came to Israel, and they would recognize that God had supplied the wheat, And took care of them. And then in the fall feast, you have the trumpets. And then you have the Day of Atonement. Then you have tabernacles. And that was connected to the harvest as to do with like nuts and olives and grapes, etc. And so every time there was three major feasts that Israel would have to go to Jerusalem. But it was connected to the harvest. And so God always wanted the nation of Israel to recognize him as their provider. And also, God, you'll see a lot of times reference in the scripture, the former and latter rains. And what that represented, again, was uh, God being the provider, the one who would send rain. And so the former rains took place in the fall and early winter time. They would get the seed in the ground and the early rains would come. And then you would go through the winter time into the spring. And then the latter rains would come in the spring which would bring in the harvest, okay? And so God was the God of the former and the latter rains, and he was the God of the harvest. And the reason why it so offended the Lord that the nation of Israel turned to Baal worship was because Baal was seen as like a husband and a provider for those that worshipped him. As a matter of fact, he's seen in the ancient culture, they have statues of him, holding like a lightning bolt because he was supposedly the one who would send the rain. So you can understand why God was so specifically offended at that God that was worshipped because it was literally replacing him. And so when I say that tonight, we're going to get a little bit deeper, but you have to understand the harvest cycle. So every year when Israel would come together for these holy convocations, it was intentional that they would recognize that God was their source. He was like a husbandman to them. He would be their provider. He was the one that sent the rain. He was the one that brought in the harvest. And it doesn't take a lot to, uh, to realize the spiritual application to this as well, that God is the one also that sends the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and then brings in the harvest of souls as well, okay? And so that's kind of we're going to have this revelation of both the natural and the spiritual as we look at this together. In Acts chapter 2, this obviously took place on the day of Pentecost, which is Shavuot, and it was something that 
Israel had celebrated 1,500 years before we read about it in the book of Acts, okay? And so as everybody was gathering to Jerusalem and the day of Pentecost fully came, God back 1,500 years earlier on Mount Sinai, when they celebrated this same feast, mind you, God gave them his word. But now 1,500 years later, God gave us his spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. People were filled with the spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues. It was a very powerful encounter. And it was in this context on this specific feast day when the day of Pentecost fully came, the Holy Spirit poured out. And I know we've, everybody's read this story, but this was the birth of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 accepted the Lord, but this is what Peter said in the midst of that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And it will come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the supernatural And then also, I want you to see this. This is interesting. In Luke chapter 7, when we talk about also the fact that we are a priesthood. So let me shift gears and I'll bring it all together here at the end. But this is a really interesting passage to me because it's a reference to water baptism, water immersion. In Luke 7, 24, it said, When the messengers of John had left, And he began to speak to the crowds about John. Now, this was Jesus speaking to those that were there about John the Baptist. And he said to them, what did you guys go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind, what did you go see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one more than just a prophet... This is the one whom it's written, Behold, and this was out of Isaiah, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. So John the Baptist was the great preparer of Jesus to come. And Jesus goes on to say, And I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and and the tax collectors heard this, They acknowledge God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, that's a hard phrase for people to really understand, and I'm going to explain it. And then in verse 30, but look at this. The Pharisees and the lawyers, these were those that studied the law. They were real religious people. It says they rejected God's purposes for them having not been baptized by John. Now, that's interesting because the heathen were ready to accept Christ and the religious were rejecting him. And it was, listen to what it says here though. It says, having acknowledged God's justice by having been baptized by John. What does that even mean? It's, it's in the Greek, I looked it up in the way that it's translated here. I don't think people really grasp. So let me explain it. What it's actually saying here is this. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance that if people did not get things right with God, and repent and be baptized and, and get things dealt with that they that God would judge their sin basically and those that humbled themselves and they went there and they believe what John was saying they repented of their sin they acknowledge God's justice that he is a just God he will judge all sin and wickedness 
and they humbled themselves to repent and be baptized, they were spiritually ready when Jesus came to accept him in his ministry. Isn't that awesome? But yet the religious ones, the ones that were so religious like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that meticulously studied the word of God, they rejected John's message. They rejected his ministry. And when the son of God was standing right there in front of him, they would not accept him. I find that very interesting because when you go back and look at the first scripture I read, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I can't help but think about this. And my my wife's back there, and we've talked about things like this. Here we are in what the Bible calls the last days. We are seeing a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last 200 years. I've studied revival history. Even into the 90s, we saw an amazing move of God, and I believe we're about to see another one. The Holy Spirit being poured out, and it's interesting in the same way that all of these heathen out there flock to these things and they give their lives to jesus they repent they accept what god's doing yet some of the most religious people will look at these moves of god even though the bible says and it will come to pass in the last days i will pour out my spirit on all flesh on all mankind even though it says it clearly they'll look at these moves of god and reject them even mock them and say it's not of god in fact some of them go so far as to say it's of the devil Isn't it interesting how history repeats itself? So with that said tonight, in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim his excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But we are a priesthood. And the priesthood had to be set apart and consecrated. So everybody that has truly accepted Jesus Christ, to accept him as your Savior, you must acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you're on your way to hell and you need a Savior. If you haven't, if you haven't made that acknowledgement, then you're just religious. You're not really the Lord's, okay? But you have to make an acknowledgement of God's justice, just like those that accepted John's message of repentance. The gospel is a message that we turn from our wickedness unto the Son of God and we receive forgiveness even though we don't deserve it. And now we live for him as a priesthood. What does it mean to be a priest? Because a lot of times when I preach on this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and other scriptures, when you ask people what is, what is a priest, people automatically think of like a Catholic priest or something. But you have to go back to the word of God and look at what God gave us. And these are Aaron and his sons that were priests. And to be a priest unto God, they were clothed in a layer of white, which represents the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. Then they had a blue tunic over that, and that blue tunic represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the clothing of power from on high. And then there was a golden ephod on top of that, which represents God's manifest presence, his glory that we're called to carry. Because even the priests of the Old Testament were called to carry the ark of God, which was the presence of God on their shoulders. And so it's our responsibility. But what is it to be a priest? A priest would go into where God's presence was and worship and pray and minister unto the Lord. But to do that, they had to be a consecrated people. 
And so the priesthood had a great responsibility to be set apart, even from among those that were Israelites, they were set apart unto God as holy. And they would go through a, a process of the blood of the Lamb spiritually cleansing them. They would be water immersed, and they would be anointed with oil, and they were set apart, consecrated as holy unto God, so that they were able to go and minister unto him. And every year, once a year, the high priest would go in just wearing all the white garments on the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, and he would have to separate himself seven days before. He had to go through his special water immersion to consecrate himself, and then he was able spiritually to go into the Holy of Holies and pray on behalf of the nation of Israel. But I want you to notice that he had to be consecrated unto God. And even in Jewish tradition, when a woman is going to be married, she will actually be water immersed to separate herself as she's entering a new phase of her life. And it's not hard to start seeing the symbolism here that before Jesus comes, that there is going to be a bride that is without spot or blemish. There's going to be wise virgins with extra oil, those that are a priesthood unto God that have consecrated themselves. Just like the first coming of Jesus, they had to acknowledge God's justice. God is a just God. He's not going to tolerate anybody's sin, no matter what they call themselves. He's just. And so they humbled themselves and repented and got things right with God. And as they did that, they were ready when Jesus came. In the same way, in these latter days, God is a just God. He's a holy God. And every single one of us must acknowledge that we must repent of our sin and make sure everything is right between us and him that we can be without spot or blemish when he comes, okay? So with that said, I'm going to give you a couple quick thoughts as we close out. But I want to talk about an ancient Jewish wedding because maybe many have never heard this before. And then Matthew 25, you'll see the connection. But in ancient Jewish times, and this would have been the time Jesus understood and his parables were referring to because he was speaking to people that would have understood that. For example, if he was here with us today, he might give a parable and a reference to maybe using the, the, our holiday Thanksgiving, and he might refer to something real practical that we do every Thanksgiving. What do you think of turkey and dressing and different things like that, right? You know, at Christmas time. So he might use things in a very practical sense that we could relate to, okay? Well, in the same way, Jesus' parables related to those people. And that's why also there was a lot of parables that would have had to do with like the harvest, the parable of the seed and the sower. As many of them were farmers. All right, so with that said, in ancient Jewish times, if a young man wanted to get married, he knew that the young ladies that were virgins and that, that were um, available, would, their chores were to go draw water for the family. And so he might go out to that area where the wells are and just kind of look around and if he found a young lady that he thought that he wanted to marry, he would have to go to her father and he would begin to talk to him about his intentions. And the father, this was the tradition of this time, her father and him would discuss a dowry. And, you know, they would bargain. I'm sure that he said things like, I fed this girl for all these years, you know, and he would say, well, I can give you so many sheep, so many camels, so much grain. He'd think, well... 
Yeah, yeah, but I fed her all these years. And they said, okay, I can add some more sheep. I can add some. And so they would find some type of an agreement. And after they agreed to a price, she would be brought in and there would be a cup of the fruit of the vine set on the table. And her father would say, this young man's intention is to marry you. He, he has my approval. And, and we've set the dowry. And there would even be a document drawn up called a ketubah that would be signed. If, but she had to agree to it. She still had a free will. She could reject it. And if she agreed to it, she would drink the cup of the fruit of the vine. Which I thought that was interesting because Jesus said about the communion cup, do this in remembrance of me till I come. Isn't that interesting? So it always makes us think about his coming when we take communion. But anyway, she would drink the cup. And then from that moment on, when she went out in public and she went to continue to do her chores, she would wear a veil over her face and so anybody else that was coming out to the well to look for a wife would see her with a veil and realize she's spoken for, so she's off limits, okay? She had to keep herself pure. Now, this young man that was there that was her bridegroom, he would go prepare a place for her. And he could be gone up to two years. He would go back to his father's house, and he would begin to build a bridal chamber onto what they had. And it could take him a while to do it. And no man knew the day or the hour that he would come except for that bridegroom's father who, if this was the custom, while he's building the chamber, he's getting everything ready, he's getting his finances in order, he's doing all he's supposed to do. Eventually, when his father felt that everything was done, he would say to his son, go get your bride. And so the young man, this was the tradition of this time, very foreign to our minds, the way we do things. But he would go as a thief in the night. And his, the friends of the bridegroom would come with him and there would be people blasting the shofar. It did happen. This is the way it was. There would be rejoicing and singing in the middle of the night. He would go get his bride. Now, her responsibility was she was to live a set-apart life, keeping herself pure for him. And she had to be looking for him because he, she had no idea when he was going to come. So she had to live ready for him to come at any time. And so every night when she would go to bed, she would always have a lamp there. And then she would have extra oil so that if he came at the second or third watch in the night, he could come at two or three in the morning. She would be able to pour that extra oil and light her lamp and she was ready at any time for him to come. And so the bridegroom would come one night when his father said it was time blasting the shofar as they're going through the streets of israel people be sound asleep would hear this and wake up and realize it's a joyous occasion somebody's about to get married and then they would show up at her house he would snatch her out the window as a thief in the night i'm telling you and take her away to his father's house to a place that he had already prepared for her and they would be what's called a chopa set up and they would have a wedding ceremony this wedding ceremony was performed, and then they would celebrate for seven days. And he had a place already prepared for her, and then they would live together, and he was exempt from work and exempt from military service for a full year to spend time with her. But it's interesting, the seven days, because I can't help but think about the seven-year tribulation. And the way I see it, I feel that the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. He's going to catch us away. And we're going to be with him at the marriage supper for seven years. But I said all that so that you would have some background about what this parable actually means. And this is just the way I see it. 
but I do not believe that everybody that simply calls themselves a Christian is going to be ready when the Lord comes. And that's why, I'm going to read you this parable, but that's why Jesus kept telling them, you really need to watch and pray, and you need to be ready when the Son of Man comes. You do not know the day nor the hour. Nobody knows it except my Father. Okay? So let me read Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins. Now I want you to notice it's not five virgins and five harlots. It's ten virgins. This is ten people that profess the Lord, okay? And it says, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. When you went out to meet the bridegroom was when he came as a thief in the night, okay? Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those that were foolish took lamps but had no oil with them. But the wise took jars of oil with their lamps. And while the bridegroom delayed, they all rested and slept, Sleeping has to do with prayerlessness in the Bible. But at midnight, there was a cry. Look, the bridegroom is coming. So when Jesus actually does come in that way in the rapture, the Bible describes it as a shout. And there's going to be the, the, the shout of the archangel. There's going to be a blast of a shofar. But he's coming like a thief in the night. And it, the shout was, look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their, trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. And the wise answered, No, lest there not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those that sell it and buy some for yourself. But while they went out to buy extra oil, the bridegroom came like a thief in the night. And those that were ready... Went with him to the wedding banquet. He, they were caught away. They went to a place that he had already prepared for them. And the door was shut. At that point, it's too late. But afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so this is a warning for all of us because this parable was to all ten virgins. It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't like, this wasn't dealing with Christians and non-Christians. This parable was to the entire body of Christ. That some will be ready and some won't be ready. Now this is really sobering because I've studied end time prophecy and when I look at the book of Revelation, there are people that are tribulation saints. And I'm going to close with this thought. The barley harvest is the first of the year. So in ancient Israel, the first of the year was in the spring, and it's at Passover, okay? The barley was gathered in, and the barley, they would have a winnowing fork, like a pitchfork, and they would take it and toss it up in the air in what's called a threshing floor. The wind would blow through and separate the chaff. It was a gentle harvest, it was a harvest that the winds, if you will, of the Holy Spirit could blow in. And the Holy Spirit could convict us. He could deal with us. We could repent. And God was, you know, cleaning house, so to speak. And those that yielded to that wind were made ready when it was time to gather in that harvest, okay? Then the second harvest, this is interesting, is the wheat harvest. And that happens at the next major feast, Shavuot. Wheat is very different than barley because it's in a hard shell. 
And to get that, you, do, you harvest wheat as far as getting the grain separated from the chaff, very different than barley. Barley is kind of an easy harvest in that you just toss it up and the wind separates it. The wheat harvest is different. Wheat is, it has a shell around it that's very hard. And so to break that shell, they would have to have a sled and people would stand on the sled putting all their body weight. An animal would drag the sled over it and it would crack that hard shell and then they could separate the wheat from the chaff. But it had to be crushed. And I can't help but think about this. It's like that very first harvest is a harvest that the winds can deal with. I don't want to be somebody that hardens my heart that God has to put me through like a crushing to deal with me. I want, some, I want to be somebody that's humble and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The wind of the Holy Spirit can blow in my life and convict me. I repent and God deals with me because I believe the barley harvest are those that are going to be ready for the rapture. And the wheat harvest are those that, that have a hardened heart. They're difficult and God has to allow them. They go through the tribulation time and even though there are tribulation saints, the crushing of that time, the difficulty of that time. Jesus said about that time that it had to be cut short or no flesh would survive. There's going to be a lot of martyrdom. Even when you read the book of Revelation, you see that there are those at the wedding supper of the Lamb, but then there are others that came in later that had their, their robes washed in blood, if you will, it speaks of martyrdom, that were placed under the altar. Those are tribulation saints. Those that were saved out of the tribulation, but they were saved by crushing. They had to give their life for the gospel, basically. Then the last harvest of the year in the fall is the grapes. And grapes always are a reference, if you will, of the grapes of wrath, the crushing. This is interesting as well because back in ancient Israel, in ancient times, they would take all these grape clusters and they would put them into a vat. And then they would have people that, that stepped on them with their feet and they would go through and crush the grapes. And as they did that, the grape juice would begin to come out of the bottom, which would be caught. And that's how you brought in the grape harvest. But the Bible shows us in the scriptures that the grapes of God's wrath. And so at the end of the tribulation time, after the, the earth has gone through all those, uh, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, and, and it's a scary time because... There's a huge amount of, of humanity that dies during this time. I'm just telling you. All, at the end of all of that, the Bible says God will send his angels because Jesus comes physically to the earth and gather from the four corners his elect that are his. And there's going to be those that have survived the tribulation time and they're going to be sheep and goat nations that Jesus separates, some to hell, but others to be with him for the next thousand year reign that he's going to be here. But that's going to be those like the grape harvest that came through the tribulation time that now come to him and they believe in him because they see him. They accept him because he's there in front of them. And so I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to be among the grape harvest. I, know, I definitely don't want to have to be among the wheat harvests that go through the tribulation and have to be crushed. I want to be like the barley harvest that God can just speak to me and deal with my sin. And so as I looked at these feast cycles, it's really interesting to me because God speaks so much through this. 
And so I just challenge people, just like in the days of John the Baptist, he came to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And anybody that knows even a little bit about Bible prophecy can see the day we're living and know that the coming of the Lord is near and that God has some people in the earth that, like John the Baptist, are preparing people for his coming. But I want to ask this question to everybody. Will we humble ourselves and listen like those listen to John the Baptist? He came and he said, I'm coming to prepare the, for the way to the one who is to come, the Messiah. And they acknowledge God's justice. They realize that God is a just God. He doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't wink at anybody's sin. I mean, he is just. Either we're going to humble ourselves and give our lives to him and really deal with our sin or we're not. He loves everybody, but he's just. How many knows what I'm talking about? If you go before a judge in the earth that right now is up there in his black robe and he's going to show partiality to somebody and not to another, he's not a righteous judge. If he's going to take a bribe, he's not a righteous judge. God is, we got to acknowledge God's justice. He loves all of us so much that he sent his son to die for us. But at the same time, every single one of us have to come to a place that we realize that I, I myself must repent and get things right with God. If there's something in my life that's not right, I want God to show me and deal with me so that I can be ready when Jesus comes, okay? And so tonight I want to close with that, and I want to lead us in a prayer. But if there's anything that we need to get right with God, I want you to think about your personal sin. I want you to think about your family. How's everybody doing spiritually? Now I want you to think about your home. Is your home a place where God is honored, where the things of God are honored, where people are learning about the Lord, or is it a place that there's sin in the camp? And let's all of us humble ourselves. I'm the first one right now saying, God, whatever you need to do in me, show me. Okay, people that are sincere preachers of the gospel, we get up and share what God lays in our heart, but we're examining ourselves too. Lord, is there anything in my life that's not right? Is there anything in my family, in my home, anything I need to deal with? Help me to do that. But I want us to take time here to examine ourselves. So, Father, as we close out with prayer, I thank you for your Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us. This sermon was just a preparation for what's coming in this series to kind of get our teeth, if you will, into the, the meat of this and just begin this series and i know that it might be a little bit deep in some ways but very preparatory but lord i'm asking you tonight to show us if there's anything not right lord i'm asking you that everyone that's heard this every everybody's listening online those that follow us through podcasts because there's many that do that never physically come here but follow us online lord i'm asking you for every single person that hears this that i thank you for your holy spirit moving upon them convicting of sin and remain on us by your grace and mercy until we deal with it lord that we can't just shake this off we can't just leave here and forget about it but let these words stay with us let your scripture churn in us let your holy spirit stay upon us until we deal with everything we need to lord help us to be ready so wherever you're at tonight i want you if you could come up and play the keyboard please just really soft but wherever you are tonight, I want us to take a moment to pray. And Jesus, we look to you tonight. You are our salvation. You are our source. There is no other salvation outside of you. 
We can't be saved by religious works. It is only by us looking to the cross and realizing that we must accept Christ. We must turn from our sin. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He loves us. He wants to forgive us. But we have to come to him. We draw close to him. He'll draw close to us. So, Lord, we take a moment. Wherever you're at, let's close our eyes and focus. Some of you, maybe you've never prayed this way before, but I want you to think about what I'm saying. Even some of you young people tonight, is everything right? If you were to leave out of here and some catastrophe happened and God forbid somebody was to die, are you really truly ready to meet the Lord? And let's pray about that and make sure everything's right with us and God. Just look to Jesus tonight. Jesus, I believe in you. I repent of my sin. I accept you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. I want to be ready. Father, let the fear of God be upon us. And that we can't just shake this thing, Lord. Stay on us. Help us. Give us the grace to deal with things we need to deal with. That we don't leave out of here and get distracted by all the different distractions that Satan tries to use in our lives. Distracted with jobs, different things. Lord, help us to stay focused on our relationship with you. In Jesus' name. And even those that are listening to this, just stop where you're at and really pray. Make sure everything's right with you and God. Are there things in your home that you need to get out of your home? Are there things in your personal life Are there relationships that you know are not good for you that maybe you need to sever? Are there things that you need to throw in the trash and get out of your life? Whatever you got to do. Jesus talked about extreme measures. He said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than hell with both. Now, he wasn't talking about physically gouging an eye, but he was saying take extreme measures to make sure whatever you got to deal with, whatever you got to get out of your life, that you do it. Don't put it off. So Lord, we turn to you tonight. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.